So when I sat down today to prepare this homily, it finally hit me how tired I was. And then I started thinking about the fact that I had preached six times in the last 48 hours and I didn't really feel like doing it again. And then I had no idea what to say on this important feast of the Holy Family. So basically I was just throwing myself a pity party. And then it hit me. That's family life. You're tired often because of trying to juggle all the responsibilities of family life, whether it's work or activities in the home and visiting friends and family in normal circumstances. There's often fatigue involved. And there's many repetitive tasks in family life, namely dishes and laundry that never seem to end, but they have to get done. And then not knowing what to do and what to say. Who knows what the best way to treat each child or a spouse is in family life? How do you know what the right words are at the right time? We all question ourselves probably regularly whether we're doing the right thing or saying the right thing to each other to bring about unity and love in the home. This is family life. Most of you here have either done that or are doing that currently. I came across this little thing on Facebook in the last few days that said, Mary, exhausted, having just gotten Jesus to sleep, is approached by a young man who thinks to himself, what this girl needs is a drum solo. <laughs> First, what not to do in family life. Stop comparing yourself to any other family. We all do it. Stop doing it. It doesn't help anybody. Because the externals really say very little about the reality of the family anyway. When we stop and think about it, we know that to be true. Your family is your family. You don't need to compare to anybody else because that's a different family. It's a different dynamic. It's different personalities. The way that things happen are different. Comparing does nothing. Trying to be like another family does nothing. Stop comparing. Then what is the ideal family? Do we even have an answer to that? What is an ideal family look like? What does it look like? And then nobody knows what they're doing. As parents, as children, you don't know. You can read a hundred how to be a good father, how to be a good mother books if you want, but nobody knows what they're doing. You're making it up as you go. And then another kid comes along and you gotta totally reinvent it because what worked with the first doesn't work with the second, let alone however many come after that. Just look at the two examples that were given in our readings today. Mary and Joseph. Yes, they're saints. But both of them, at the beginning of this whole narrative of the birth of Jesus, had to accept from the angel Gabriel, from God, to take on Jesus, which meant that they had to carry the shame of having a child out of wedlock for the rest of their lives. You ever wondered why they went to Bethlehem that we're told is Joseph's hometown, meaning he wasn't the only one from his family that had to go be registered in Bethlehem. 
why none of his family took him in? They had to carry that for the rest of their lives. They were that couple. Or Abraham and Sarah. Yes, Abraham was a righteous man, and he put his faith in God. But he also got impatient with God. And when God promised him descendants and none was coming, he said, well, then maybe I should just take it into my own hands and went to his servant, Hagar, and had a son with her so that he could have an heir, a male heir. We all know the saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Do you know what the name Isaac means? God laughs. God gives Abraham a son and has him named, I'm laughing at you. God laughs when we think we need to be in control. When we think we have an idea of what an ideal family looks like, God's laughing at us. Because that's not what it's about. So what do we do in family life? How do Mary and Abraham become models of what we should do in family life? I find it intriguing. The descriptive words tied to Mary in these first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, from the time that she encounters the angel Gabriel at the Annunciation to the time where they find Jesus in the temple. There's a few descriptive words describing what's Mary's reaction. The first is when the angel Gabriel comes to her, she's perplexed. She has no idea what's going on. Then we're told later that at the manger in Bethlehem, she ponders these things in her heart. Pondering is her state before being the mother of Jesus. Then today in the gospel, when they go to the temple with Jesus, she's astonished at what's being said of her son. And then later, she didn't understand. She didn't couldn't wrap her head around what was going on. And then with the finding of Jesus in the temple, when they do find Jesus, she tells Jesus, you made my father, your father and I very anxious. Mary and Joseph were anxious. And then from there, she kept all these things in her heart. Pondering, astonished, lack of understanding, anxiety, and keeping these things in her heart. She didn't know what to say to Jesus. She didn't know what the right thing to do all the time was in being his mother. Then when we look at Mary and Abraham today, Mary does it today, Abraham does it later with Isaac. What do they do with this firstborn son? They offer him back to God. Mary today brings Jesus to the temple and returns him to the Father. Later. Abraham will be asked to take Isaac up the mountain and to sacrifice him to God. This one promise that God gave him, and he willingly turns Isaac back over into God's hands. This is the same gospel, the presentation of Jesus in the temple, presenting them before God. What I, I'm sure I read it somewhere else, what I say all the time, try to remember all the time, a child or a spouse is not a problem to be solved, but a gift to be pondered 
and to be offered back to God. A child or a spouse is not a problem to be solved, but a gift to be pondered and offered back to God. That's the Christian understanding of how we treat each other. Because we're made in the image and likeness of God, so we don't belong to anyone but God. And so as spouses, you take each other as husband and wife to return each other back to God, to be the one who guides the other back to God. And you willingly, on the day of your child's baptism, accept the responsibility of training them in the practice of the faith and keeping God's commandments by loving God and our neighbor. That's family life. How that happens is chaos, but it's simple. It's a simple reality. And in my mind, in my opinion, if we hold on to that as Christians, it completely changes the way that we live family life because it's no longer wrapped up into some goal or expectation that we have for each other, for children, of what they should become. And it's this continual effort and retrying of how do I offer them to God? How do I bring them to God? And for those of you here that have grown up children, that doesn't stop. That part of your parenthood doesn't stop when your kids are grown up and adults. The way that you continually try to offer them to God in your prayer, in your sacrifices for them, is the way that you keep living as their mother and father. So, when we're tired all the time, when we're doing the same tasks over and over again, when we don't know what to say or what to do, we're getting close to living family life. Because we don't need to be in control of what's going on to model ourselves after the Holy Family. They weren't. Mary and Joseph weren't in control. And sometimes they didn't understand and sometimes they were anxious. But Mary pondered and kept these things in her heart. And in that way, she continually brought Jesus back and offered him, he's not my own, he belongs to the Father. <laughs>